Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. We're in Melbourne and with me today is me, Lynn Lee, who is a prominent Australian PR specialist. She's also arrived here many, many years ago as a refugee and she's had much to do with the Vietnamese Museum of Australia. Me, Lynn, welcome to the program. Thank you, Luke. It's lovely to see you again after so many years, and I'm really happy to be here. Has been a while. Tell me about the museum. How did it get started? And I understand it's the first of its type on the planet. Yes, I mean, it is such a great project, one that's very close to my heart, as I'm sure you know. It is going to be the first museum dedicated to the Vietnamese experience after they left Vietnam following the fall of Saigon in 1975. It captures thousands of stories of Vietnamese who've left and arrived in Australia. It is the world's first Vietnamese museum of its kind. And I think once it is launched in 2025, it's going to be like the sixth multicultural museum in Australia. So it's very exciting. And I think the Vietnamese community are mainly rallying behind it. It's needed. I mean, thousands of people have perished in the escape from the communist regime following 1975 collapse to the communist regime and so you can imagine there's a lot of emotions a lot of memories that they want to honor and restore it's not just about refugees fleeing uh, capturing those stories but it's also the vets who fought in the vietnam war you know sons and husbands who have lost their lives to that period of time so yeah it's very emotional it was an extraordinary period and I remember I was, I was like 12 or 13 when the first boat started arriving. I think it was Malcolm Fraser Correct, who opened yes. the gates and said, yes, that's right. let them come in. You were among those. And Definitely. Te- so I, my family and I left. So I, I was very young, um, around about six, six to seven years old when we fled on a flimsy fishing boat. And um, it was in 79. My parents tried to leave pretty much earlier than that but we got not captured but the the person the people that were organizing the 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 boat to 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 flee took off without us right um there's a lot of corruption you know people were desperate to leave the country so they they took my parents money and and others as well and scammed us obviously and and so we didn't wasn't successful so then my parents had to build up their savings again mm-hmm. and uh, thankfully we were lucky in 1979 when we left and uh, yeah it was horrific it was and you know I mean I can tell you a lot more about the stories of our you know our escape but what I can say is that Malcolm Fraser was absolutely instrumental in helping Vietnamese settle in Australia in fact it was his government's immigration policies in the mid-70s after the fall of Saigon that basically sent something like 50,000 Vietnamese into Australia. And so you talk to a lot of the Vietnamese in the know and they love Malcolm Fraser. In fact, we held a fundraiser earlier this year to raise money for the museum, which is in construction phase. And um, his uh, widow, so Tammy Fraser, Mm -hmm. was the guest of honour. And this is beautiful. And, you know, like everybody was like saying thank you to her because, you know, if it wasn't for... Malcolm Fraser and his team at the time, we wouldn't be here. Because, you know, there were, it was, Australia had just come through. I mean, you know, white supremacy was still quite fresh in that. I mean, it was still quite kind of bubbling away. Of course, you know, Australia was one of the countries that came to, to, to help uh, the two million Vietnamese right. who fled. And here's the thing, Luke, like out of the two million who fled, 
Vietnam from the war, 50% of them perished. That's either from, yes, at sea, due to drowning, dehydration, starvation, or they were killed and raped by pirates, and that, that was rife during that time, because, you know, they knew that people were fleeing with, you know, their worldly possessions. So lots of robbery, you know, it, there's been so many horrific stories. And people who made it to even like one of the Red Cross islands who were taking in refugees, they also died of disease and stuff. So yeah, so only half survived. I'm very lucky. You know? It still goes on today. Yes, I can Sri Lankan imagine. refugees from India. That's right. And the waves won't stop because I think as long as we mm. have war in the world, there's going to be many, mm. you know, generations of um, people trying to escape oppression and rebuild their life to the family and their kids. So, yeah, we have to keep an eye out on that, I think. I remember on several occasions in Vietnam speaking to uh, children of Vietnamese refugees who had gone back to Vietnam often to do business. Mm. And it was interesting, their take, and where they say they were different Mm. was that with a lot of those refugees especially those of uh, Chinese ancestry after the uh, invasion of Cambodia and the the big fight that happened in northern uh, Vietnam when the Chinese invaded, Mm. that those of Chinese ancestry, Mm. they basically had a gun pointed at them and they were told to leave. That's right, yes. And, And because of the way they arrived in Australia, there was never a thought of going back to Vietnam. Mm. And now they were in Australia, that was it. They had to make the best of what they had. Mm. Unlike other migrants who were arriving from all around the planet, who always had the option of going home. That's right, exactly. And to that point, Luke, I think it's really important for everyone that discusses this experience to understand that there are definitions pertaining to refugees and to migrants. It's very different. Like, I think if you look at what the United Nations say, the term refugee is often used very interchangeably with the term migrant, but there are marked differences, okay? Like a refugee, according to the UN, is that it's a person who are outside their country of origin Mm -hmm. for reasons of, say, hatred, sorry, of feared persecution, conflict, violence, and and as a result require international protection. Whereas the migrant is not like that. You've got to understand refugee and migrants are two very different types of um, immigration, I guess you can say. So, yeah, no, like, if you bring it back to my family and and other Chinese, Vietnamese, or even just Vietnamese refugees, that we knew when we arrived in Australia that this is our home now. My parents still have siblings in Vietnam, and it took them a long time to be able to go back in a way that is safe once they've got their Australian passport. Right? Mm-hmm. But it took years, and my parents still don't trust. Well, they weren't welcomed back in the perhaps up until about late, late 90s. 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's kind of roughly Correct. what I'm thinking. But yes. um, it wasn't really until the economy went pear shaped, yep. and then earlier in 2005, mm-hmm. that um, they were actually welcomed back into Vietnam, and there was, I think, a much more honest relationship was forged. I mean, it was helped. I mean, it's ruthlessly communist, but at the same time, they've had many changes of government Mm. since 75, and I think that's helped as well. 
Yes, it has. It kind of has opened up, and I think refugees who fled feel a little bit safer going back, because I think there was a generation of Vietnamese returning back called the Viet Qs, mm-hmm. who would bring in money. They've set up enterprises. They've set up hotels or restaurants. They, you know, instill trade between the two countries, whether it's you know Vietnam to America to because Vietnamese are now everywhere, right? Because of the refugees' experience, sure. so they are bringing in sort of investment into Vietnam. I think they they're, they're welcomed, and then a lot of people are sending back money to those who were lucky enough to survive their escape and have established themselves in the West, so to speak. They are sending money back, and so Vietnamese who were who remained and didn't have the means to escape because you had to pay your way onto like a boat, right? Mm-hmm. They would then get sort of money from their families overseas and they set up businesses too. So I think all of that feed into the whole kind of general feeling that the economy is better if they are Vietnamese who fled are allowed back in. Mm-hmm. But still, I think if you talk to older generation, the, the trust is not completely there. But now it's safe to go back as long as they've got a, like sure. a, a passport of another nation. I mean, right. I don't. The only passport I have is the Australian passport, and I'm very grateful for it. And I always mm-hmm. want to give back in terms of the jobs that I do is about public service. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I work. I, I deliberately, intentionally choose to work for the public service, uh, public sector, because I want to help inform on policies in, mm-hmm. in areas where I can. But other people want to go and build stuff in Vietnam as a way to look after their family and and progress that way but yeah tell me about the trip out oh oh you're on an well, island yes that's you're right stranded I, I, for a long time oh look I was only seven years old but I remember it was in the in the it was very it was midnight we basically left Ho Chi Minh City or it was Saigon then mm-hmm. and went into like a little sort of holding spot on the edge of a river where we were going to be taken out to the boat and it was the death of night and i remember my mum was saying to me that you know they we had to we all we were allowed was like the clothes on our back and my family there was like me and my three brothers at the time my fourth one my fourth brother born in australia but so i was only like six years old we were given sleeping pills oh really yeah so that because didn't Kids were given sleeping pills because they didn't want children to cry and therefore wake the communists who were patrolling the mm-hmm. rivers. So went in and there was like something about 400 people on a boat that we thought were only supposed to be 150. So the, the person that were organising the boat took in a lot more people than they should. So we found ourselves on the bottom deck, like packed like sardines. And I just remember that I was very seasick as we le- left the, to the mouth of the river, to the ocean, and there were guns being sort of shot at us. But we were lucky. And so the journey was, I remember that the journey was quite peaceful in the sense that we didn't have massive storms, but there were a lot of people just being seasick. And then water was understood to be like running out really quickly. And I remember lying on the floor of the boat and getting like a door swung at my head and people were going to the toilet everywhere. It was just disgusting and filthy and just very tiring. And I I think my dad was saying that he just couldn't really breathe down there. So then he would go up with, you know, a lot of the young men who prefer to be on the upper deck and they would try and search for a rescue boat. 
we didn't know how long we were going to be at sea. Food was rationed out, but people were starting to panic. And then Lord of the Flies mentality survival, you know, sort of kicked in. And there were, you know, reports on the fourth day of people stealing food. So mm. as you can imagine, it was getting really chaotic. So it happened that we, when you're at sea, it, it, it's so dark, Luke, right? Stars weren't even enough to really light the way. But there were, we saw a flame in the distance. So cutting it short, we were at sea for like five days, maybe six nights, five days, when we saw this flame ahead of us. And it turned out to be an offshore oil rig, okay? And it's a Canadian offshore oil rig. So we basically got, we, we, we sailed there. And at first, they, the people working on the offshore says, no, no, you can't come in because we don't know who you are. But then one of the people on the boat, knew that if we weren't going to get onto this offshore oil rig, we could die because there was no land visible anywhere. So one of them climbed up, tried to climb up on, on those, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. ladders. And the motion of the sea with the boat, our boat, and kind of crashed into the offshore oil rig, basically damaging the boat. But he kind of nearly severed his thumb, so then blood was gushing out. And so, of course, the, the people on the offshore oil rig says, oh my gosh, come up for medical attention that they waved like this and so to all the 400 pairs of eyes it's like oh yes we can we are rescued so everybody starts scaring up until about that time i think that the 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 commander of that offshore oil rig says okay well look let's just go up and so mm-hmm. and so i think what happened right right is that i'm not too sure about international law but if i think they can rescue you if the boat's sinking sure so i think because our boat was damaged. I think they're obligated. Yeah, that's right. I think they've decided that it's going to be this one that they're going to rescue. I'm sure there were many boats that went past and didn't quite succeed, but mm-hmm. we were in trouble, right? The boat was damaged. So anyway, so luckily we were rescued. So um, I would say that I was very lucky because, you know, you hear stories of people who've been at, you know, at sea for like weeks and they see their loved ones being thrown over because they die from dehydration. Like horrific, horrific story. You've seen, you've heard of people who who watched their sister get raped by pirates. You've seen people just throwing themselves over because they couldn't handle the madness of mm. the, the the elements and the starvation and all that. So just horrific conditions. So I guess the museum tries and capture that whole traumatic period of time. You're talking about 1975 to 1997. Sure, I'm even yeah. thinking a bit later because uh, yeah. what you're saying, yes. all the hallmarks of yes. uh, human smuggling, That's right. and they tend to call it immigration, I have my doubts, but mm. people seeking asylum mm-hmm. and making these journeys, more so now towards Europe, but we saw it again yes. in Australia, yes. and turn the boats back, That's right. uh, all these sorts of issues that all we're having, campaigns. but the, the experiences of these mm. people at mm. sea, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed, and I think, I mean, you know, as, as somebody who's been in that boat, there was a period in Australian history recently about turn back the boats, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I couldn't, it brought back so many memories for me, and I could never be a part of that. I would say, please don't turn back the boats. Take them, take them all. We've got such huge, massive land, you know. If people, are, people do not leave their country and take such a huge chance of, it's 50-50% or even less of survival you know you, you you can't turn back the boats if they are in in need to leave their country in such a dangerous way that's saying something sure so anyway that's obviously i'm coming from the frame of reference that you know i was on that boat and i was lucky that that 
that offshore oil rig didn't turn us back, <laughs> took us on, but not everyone's that lucky. But yeah, no, I think what's happened with, I mean, I think recently there was a boat that had 700 people on it near Greece mm-hmm. that, um, capsized. that capsized and, and, you know, they were looking for, they were asking for help. They were obviously fleeing somewhere. But the world's attention was on finding the submarine. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that says to me that those seven hundred souls perished, maybe because it's not making news anymore. But but I mean that's just an example of the continuous humanitarian crisis that we're seeing. Yeah, and one would think the UN could do a bit more about this. But uh, how did you get from the oil rig to Australia? Great question. We were camped camped along the offshore. I remember I'd lost my shoes, I lost everything. All I had was just a summer dress on, right? And I remember walking on the steel of the offshore oil rig and it was it was made for heavy boots, right? Mm-hmm. So they just said people don't slip. And it was it was really hard on the feet and I remember getting pierced on the metal. But anyway, that's just it's really interesting how you remember things. We were there for about a couple of nights and I think they radioed you uh, the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. who then sent a boat from a Malaysian, because we were near Malaysia at that time, and the boat came the next morning or that uh, two mornings after and basically took us from the offshore oil rig to an island called Pulau Tangga, which is a smaller one than the Pulau Bidong, which is the main island where a lot of refugees, Vietnamese refugees went, where they kind of processed us. Meaning, this was in Malaysia? Yeah, we were in Malaysian waters, mm-hmm. you know. So it was, um, it was a Malaysian island which the Red Cross has taken over to because of this crisis, right? Of so many people fleeing. So they've set up camp. So basically we were on a boat from the so offshore oil rig onto a boat that took us to the island. And then they kind of lined us once we got to the island, lined us by family and, you know, age group and all that kind of stuff. And they basically processed us, the, Unite, the Red Cross, then had a team where they just basically wrote like, you know, which boat are you from, how old you are, which family. And then um, it, it's a, it was really, it was an interesting kind of place because it was like a tran- like a transit lounge because just to put that very sort of flippantly, but it's like, you know, we arrived and then the, the, the immigrant or the refugees who were before us were leaving at the same time. Because mm-hmm. you remember like the United Nations sent in all the countries who were who who brought in right. to come and but and all every country and by the way Australia really insisted on having first go at like interviewing the refugees because they become a bit of a policy back then yeah, yeah they really wanted like you the know, best ones that's right the Amer- uh, the, in fact the Americans they set the benchmark on that one in that after seventy five and uh, the collapse of South Vietnam the Americans would send in their teams and they would have choice pick of the people seeking asylum, refugees, they wanted the better ones. <laughs> no. well, so the Australians yes. uh, obviously followed suit. Well, yes, and and in, my, in our family's experience, my dad worked for the US Army consultants. Which would have helped. Yes, so his loyalty was to the US, but because apparently Australia wanted first go mm-hmm. at interviewing the refugees to pick the best ones, we were picked because we were a young family. Mm-hmm. My dad could speak a bit of English. They could see that maybe that we could be molded to assimilate easy because there were like four kids under seven years right. old. And, you know, my dad, mum 
came across as being educated. Mm-hmm. So we were picked, and my dad was like, he, I remember he came back to our little makeshift tent saying, oh, hey, the news is that we got selected. And mum says, great, you know, we're safe. Yeah, but it's not the US. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. But I think, Luke, I think you find that eventually a lot of com- a lot of countries when Australia and then other Switzerland, Canada, they all kind of want to do the same kind of policy. And so mm-hmm. at the end, those who were not picked, the US took all because they felt right. a bit of responsibility because sure. of what's happened, which I, I think is quite magnanimous of them. But yeah. They have been very good over the years, mm. I think. They, well, we can talk about how they left the war, but I mean, that's well, another podcast. I well, <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've had that subject before but yes. it's a uh, yes. problem with the americans which we saw in Kabul, mm. is uh when a war is no longer politically palatable mm. and there's a change in government yes they're pretty quick to drop you yes yes and the, that's the, why there's a lot of people who you know they like to say that oh, the americans lost the vietnam war and my argument's always been they didn't lose the vietnam war they abandoned south vietnam which had been a firm ally for decades and it's yes, kind that's of right. Bit of a different twist. It is, it is. You know, I think I have many American friends and I'm very fond of America in the sense that they always seem to step up when it's, you know, you see it on the world stage. The Americans are always trying to help do the right thing. Sure. And we're seeing it in Vietnam still. Yeah. There was uh, a big uh, rebellion Mm. by the Hmong in Mm. the Central Highlands not Mm. that long ago. Uh, The Americans do step in and they have taken a lot of Hmong over the years and they did take the children who weren't accepted in Vietnam That's right. because of they were of mixed race and particularly those who were mm. mixed race with African fathers, mm. they were right. totally eschewed yes. by the local communities. And the, Ameri- the Americans, they're, they're not as bad as everybody would like to make out. That's right. And definitely politics come into play. Um, mm-hmm. In our experience, we're just we're grateful. My, my, my dad had a good experience when he was helping them out. He didn't see front line because he had a bad eye. So he was recruited by, you know, it was conscription with the South Vietnam sure. Army. But uh, I think dad told me that he uh, worked in some kind of a, like a, the center, like the, the, the operation hub, mm-hmm. where he wrote how many civilians were killed, like signage, right. he wrote signage in Vietnamese and in, yeah, so just to basically, because I didn't have computers then, right? Yep. So yeah, so he, he worked on the communications, I suppose, branch of that. Anyway, so uh, we're just grateful that Australia took us in to, at, the, at the end mm. of all this. I'm trying to write about these experiences for my children and my family. It's how far, now, yeah, mm. just for the, the audience's sake, you've uh, started writing the book. That's right. It's it's taken me a, a couple of years to sort of come to this space where I'm, I'm now sort of seven chapters in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's quite a traumatic experience to write about it. It's also difficult to write about yes. yourself. Yeah, it is. And you know, growing up in the eighties um, mm-hmm. in Australia, one of the first wave of Asian refugees in the country was in, is also an interesting. Yep you know, arc in itself. So working through that, hoping to get the book out by next year, I kind of, I, I, I've set myself a, a timeline because you know, the museum is opening in 2025 right. to commemorate the 50 year, the 50th year of Vietnamese refugees arrival into Australia mm-hmm. and into Melbourne. For me, I just wanted to make sure that I also finish the book. So I'm trying to get the book finished by next yeah, year. Yeah, it's a good timeline. I was interviewing uh, Roland Naveau, mm-hmm. uh 
couple of weeks ago. In fact, he was my last podcast for The Diplomat and uh, he was in Cambodia in 75 and uh, Vietnam. And there's a lot of people planning quite a few things for the 50th anniversary mm. in 75 in Vietnam and in Cambodia. Oh, right, okay, And yes. uh, obviously here as well. Yes. Well, certainly Cambodian history is very linked with Vietnam. Sure. There's a lot of Vietnamese Cambodian who went through the same terrible traumatic experience of fleeing Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Chinese, Vietnamese too. Like, it's much more than just Vietnamese, you know. So all their stories are all important, which brings me to the museum. Going to be... It's a four or five story construction in Footscray. Which is an inner suburb in Melbourne. That's right, yes. So the federal government has invested in this and so has the state government. It will, groundbreaking of this museum will take place next year, mm-hmm. early 2024, and the grand opening will be in 2025. But I've seen the architecture, I mean, it's quite thoughtfully put together by an architect firm. The community, the Vietnamese community had to buy the land. Right. So we didn't just, we weren't given the land that this museum is going to be constructed on. It's a multi-million dollar piece of land that we got from, and we use funding to help us and we're raising funds. The government does tend to work that way. I, yes. you, know, you show us the interest, well, you provide the land and we'll... How much did they cough up? Oh, well, I think I think so, there's two... The, the, the museum's getting rolled out in two phases. Mm-hmm. I think the first phase is getting something like 17 million. Right. Which, I mean, the government is really putting some thought and investment and some support behind this and we're very grateful as a community from both sides of the spectrum so it's a good thing it's it's going to be a great little space for for people it's also an education space as well it's not just mm-hmm. for those to come and reflect on the experience to honor those who've passed away because of the experience to to honor those who fought for freedom but it's just a space for stories to be captured it's a space for people to come and yeah reflect give thanks, and, and to educate. It's all about, it's basically a beacon of human rights in some ways. I think the people who work on the museums, we, we want to fight for human freedom, not only right. in Vietnam, but around the world and in Australia. Do you find the Vietnamese diaspora is becoming more political as the years have gone by? I mean, I, I can remember when it was... Uh, the, uh, my mother worked in a library in a high mm. school where there was an enormous throughput Yes. of yep. Vietnamese, Cambodian refugees, and they're always kind of, <laughs> unlike them a lot, but they were yeah. always very um, kind of meek, mild, timid, as you were saying, here we are kind of thing. But I yes. mean, they're as Australian as everybody else. Yes. And there's a lot of politics going on yes. uh, with the Cambodian diaspora particularly, yes. but also with the Vietnamese as well. 100%, yes. Do you, do you, are they becoming more active in regards to the countries from which they came? That's a great question, Luke. I would say that they are getting more confident in voicing their mm-hmm. thoughts. I think politics has always been the subtext of every Vietnamese experience because this is the reason why we're here, right? You know Exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's in our blood in that sense and, and in the community you, you know what everyone thinks in terms because you know, they, they, they vocalise it. But I think too is that you know, the culture is that we don't we don't actively go out because we're scared of punishment. Because right. in Vietnam, right, you couldn't be a openly protesting because you'd be put in jail. So Indeed, the gen- still. Yeah, and still. So the older generation of Vietnamese in Australia are still like that. They don't vocalise, but the young ones, the first-born generation mm-hmm. who've heard their 
parent stories of people like me who were children when we came here, we are now more confident to share our thoughts and our point of views and, of, and, and to, to basically, you know, be honest about what happened with us, right? So to answer your question, yes, but there are obviously different factions in the community who say, stop saying that, or, you know, let's mm. not think about the past, or why are you dragging that up? Or, and there's other sort of sectors of the community that say, no, no, we need to air out our trauma so that this doesn't happen again. So, yes, political. There's also a little bit of agitation within the community. Like Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. The, between the Cambodians and the Vietnamese. Correct. There's, a, um, there's an enormous one. And there's mm. also, uh, you know, I'm not Cambodian or Vietnamese, but I have spent a lot of time up there. Mm. And uh, mm. I am surprised at how ill-informed some people are when they've been here for a long time. And a lot of the issues that they hang on to simply don't exist anymore. That's correct. I mean, an example of that would be the flag. Right. Which flag will the Vietnamese... Museum of Australia in Melbourne when it opens yellow in... red stripes and a red star that's correct yes yeah, that, so... will, that will annoy them oh my goodness so yes so obviously the current flag in Vietnam is the red with the star sure here, right but the people who fled Vietnam well they fled South Vietnam that's right which was another country yes it is the yellow with the red stripes yep so Interestingly, and I need to point this out, the the, the VMA, mm-hmm. they're gonna we it's in our constitution when we drew drew up the the charity organisation and mm-hmm. setting up this whole organisation, we will be flying the yellow and stripe flag. Right. We are not yes. So that's yeah. be warned, Hanoi. Yes. So I, so that is going to be interesting. Once. <laughs> that is, and already people are like debating that, but I think if you're talking about a museum that. Honours. Right. I mean, you can't deny it. Yeah. It was uh, there was a similar issue not that long ago when uh, the Australian Mint came out with a coin that had the South Vietnamese flag on it. I mean, Australian soldiers fought and died there. They weren't doing it for the communist flag. They were there for a purpose, and it was to defend that flag. That's right. So that's that's a really emotional, pivotal point that I think is going to mm-hmm. be interesting to 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 see the narrative of later. Yeah. The flag's important to us. Mm. On that note, me, Lynn Lee, thank you very much. It's been delightful. Oh, thank you, Luke. Well, you ask great questions, as always, and, um, yeah, been following your journey of a, being a journalist that you are. And, yes, all respect to you, and thank you so much for the opportunity to, to share a bit of our experience today. We must do it again when the book comes out and when the museum is open. Absolutely. Look forward to that. Thank you so much for having Thanks me. Thanks very much.